So my name is Jordan, and I am a recovering people pleaser. If there were ever a group of um, people who are obsessed with uh, the approval of others, a recovery group for that, I would certainly introduce myself in this way. As long as I can remember, I have really battled this desire to be liked. Now, for anybody that knows me, you know that I love sneakers. As long as it took me to write my sermon today, that's how long it took me to choose the kicks for today. <laughs> a lot of pain and went into this decision. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is when I get a, po- a box of sneakers at home, first I hide them from my wife, and then when the coast is clear, I go like into the closet and I, I take a deep inhale of the new sneakers. Real ones know how beautiful that is, how divine that is. When I was a kid, I had so many jobs all to support my sneaker habit. I was a waiter, I was a landscaper, I was a camp counselor. All those jobs make me fit in very well with my wife's Jamaican family. And um, <laughs> there is something growing up, though, that I even liked more than sneakers, and to this day, probably, and that was the approval of other people. I'll never forget when the spring of 96 and the classic Grail sneakers came out, the Jordan Bread 11s, and yes... <laughs> For people who say you don't believe in love in first sight, take a look at those sneakers and then tell me that again. But yo, I saw those joints in the ad and like, I was in love. And my boy called me and he said, yo, Jordan, you'll never guess there's a sneaker store on Main Street that has them in stock. I ran to my shoebox, emptied every penny I had in it, hopped in a cab and went to the sneaker store. I walked to the salesman and I asked him, did he have any in stock? He said, we have one more in stock. He walked in the back, and he came out with a box of sneakers, and I heard the angels singing as he walked out. He said, the only problem is, we only have a size nine. Now, I wore a ten and a half, so I told him, I'll take them. (laughs) I didn't just want the sneakers, I wanted them first. I wanted, and to be perfectly honest, a piece of me needed to be known as a kid who stood out, and someone who would be cool, and I did all this for people to like me. I'll never forget the first day when I put those sneakers on. Them joints hurt. (laughs) By first period, people thought I had the flu because I was sitting in class sweating. (laughs) I would take them off in between periods and be like, yeah, these, you have to take these off every 70 minutes to uh, (laughs) air circulation to rotate around your ankles. And that day, I like walked home in my socks because it was that painful to wear those sneakers. I did all of that because I was infected with the disease to please. Now, when I became a Christian and I started reading the Bible, one of the things that really jumped out the pages of Scripture to me about Jesus was that Jesus never cared if people liked him. Jesus never needed someone to validate him because he knew he was valid in and of himself. There's one scripture in John 6 where Jesus is preaching to the multitude. And at this point, Jesus has thousands of people who are following him. Jesus sets up the stage and he starts preaching about in order for you to have life, you have to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And people are like, yo, that sounds kind of weird. And scripture says in John 6 and 66, something that is one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible. It says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back, and no longer followed him. Now, 
Let me let you know a little secret about people who do ministry. People who work in ministry, like this is your worst nightmare. For you to have a large crowd, and then you say something, and everybody leaves. Instead of going into damage control, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, so Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Like he really didn't care if everybody left him. His life was so connected to the Father that he needed nothing and wanted nothing that anybody could give him. Not just the rejection of Jesus brought him down. He never even got high on the praises of people. Jesus one time was talking to people and says, I know what's inside of you. I'm not accepting your praises. Later in the Gospels, when Jesus was about to be crucified, Scripture says that Jesus was on trial in front of a man named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the boss. He was the the Roman official in charge of keeping the Jews in place. And as Jesus was being questioned, Scripture says that Jesus didn't even respond to his questioning. This is the man that had the power and the authority to either crucify or release Jesus. And Scripture says in Matthew 26, Matthew 27 and 14, it says, But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. He was amazed because this man literally held Jesus' fate, his earthly fate in his hands, and Jesus had nothing to say to him. He knew who was in charge. He didn't need to say anything on his behalf. He didn't need to put on an argument, and it's because Jesus never needed or cared to put on a show for anybody for any reason. And here's why this is so important. As we find ourselves here today on Easter, let me tell you that we are here on the events of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. These were not some trick to impress people. The resurrection was not some Ponzi scheme to boost Jesus' influence. The resurrection is not some magic trick by some magician who wants to say, hey, everybody, look at what I can do. The resurrection is something that happened. It's an event that changed history. And it's not something that is meant to just influence our head, but also our hearts and our lives. Here's where we're going today. The resurrection happened, and it changes everything. I want to read the account of the resurrection from one of the gospel accounts in Scripture in Mark 16. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. So at this point, Jesus had been crucified, he had been laid in a tomb, and these women were going to anoint Jesus with spices. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. Now, to live in New York City in 2023... I know that in a room like this and those watching online, there are a lot of people who came today on your stopover before brunch or lunch. And like the story of the resurrection, the account of the resurrection is something that you might even really want to believe in, but you struggle to believe in it. 
You struggle to believe in the historical veracity that this thing actually happened, that it's not a fairy tale. Or you might struggle to believe how this even works its way into your life. So let me talk to you all for a second, for those of you who struggle to believe uh, really in just the reality of the resurrection. Two things I want to say. One, you're in a fantastic place. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with, with wrestling with your faith, asking the difficult questions. That is something that draws us closer to God, not pushes us away from God. But let me tell you this right here. Uh, before, I practiced, before I was a pastor, uh, I practiced law for about seven years, and I am a litigator. Sometimes people ask me, like, do you miss law? And most of the time when I think about all the paperwork, my answer is no. But I, I, I miss the thrill of the courtroom. Like, I miss the feeling of having five minutes to prepare for a case and standing up in front of a judge to present an argument to a judge. Like, I, I miss it. it. There's really no replication for that in anywhere in society for me. And one thing about litigation is that whenever you're, like, talking to a witness or cross-examining someone, before you even get to what they say or will say, you have to first address why they're saying what they're saying. Like, before you get to what a person is saying, you have to first address what is their motivation for saying it. If they're testifying to something that's going to benefit them, you have to take their testimony with a grain of salt because you know that they are saying something to help advantage them and that it might not be as believable as it is, as what they're saying. But in certain rare instances, you get people who testify against their own interests. They say something that's going to put them in hot water and when they do, you know what's believable because no sane person testifies to something that's going to put them in jeopardy and get them in trouble. So if we were to rewind time and go back to the first century and look at the men and women who are presenting this claim to us that they saw Jesus raised from the dead, the question is, what was their motivation? Why would they say these things? Well, before we even get to that, one of the things that's really fascinating about the scripture one reason why I love it is that it doesn't paint a rose-colored version of the heroes of the faith. It doesn't give us a legend that everybody was phenomenal. Actually, it shows us the, the flaws, the sins, the weaknesses, the damages of those who followed Jesus. It shows us the real account of their life. So when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed by one of his own people. And after Jesus was betrayed, a whole group of soldiers and people come with clubs, the people who followed Jesus for years, the people who told Jesus that they love him, here's what it says they did in scripture. In Matthew 26, it says, then all the disciples deserted him and they ran away. When Jesus was being handed over to the officials, they all deserted him and then they ran away. They were terrified. They were afraid that what was happening to Jesus would eventually happen to them. And check this out. They wanted no parts of it. So they left. And then something happened. Something happened that flipped the script in their life and changed their story. And instead of being afraid and terrified, they ended up being the boldest people who said, we have seen the resurrected Jesus. And as a result, these people were willing to be beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and killed for saying that we saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, what is their motivation to say Jesus rose from the dead? To be punished, to be beaten. You know, I think about Peter, who, has a, who had a wife, and I think about the lengths I would go to to go home to my family. 
You know, on social media, they had this whole stop snitching campaign. Not me. I'm more snitching. <laughs> if you and I don't ever do a crime with me, I'm telling you that right now. When the cops come in, I'm like him right there with the glasses. He did it. Arrest him, not me. I'm going home today. It's a warning. I'm telling you right now, please don't commit a crime with me. I'm not built for it. I'm, I'm just not. I know I'm not. No one dies for a lie. No one is punished for something that is not truly, is not true. One of my favorite quotes, I talk about this often on days when we talk about the, the re reality of the resurrection, uh, is written by a man named Charles Coulson. Charles Coulson uh, started an organization called Prison Ministries. He started it because he himself went to prison for the Watergate scandal. Watergate with Richard Nixon, where they were doing all the espionage and stuff. Here's what Charles Coulson says about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. The people who wrote scripture had everything to lose, and they did lose it. And they lost it gladly because this resurrection is true. You know, even more than the beauty of scripture and the lives that it shows us, the lives of people that it shows us, is I believe in a resurrection because I've been resurrected. I believe in a resurrection because I know what it feels like to have veils in front of my eyes and one day those veils drop. I believe in a resurrection because of many of you in this room, because I've seen your lives resurrected. I've seen marriages brought back from the dead. I've seen people's lives turned around. I've walked home depressed sometimes thinking there's no way in the world the situation changes and then it changes. The resurrection happened and many of you have experienced your own resurrection power in your life. Now, it would be a shame for you to have experienced resurrection power in your life and to keep that to yourself. But I once heard a quote that said, the, the person with the experience is never at the mercy of the person with an argument. I've experienced resurrection power, and so I'm never at the mercy of a person who has a, an argument one way or, or the other. And so if you're struggling with this reality of the resurrection, keep struggling, keep it at the forefront of your mind and your attention. But the resurrection happened, and it changes everything. So today I wanted to talk about, th very briefly, three things. We could talk about a hundred different things of what the resurrection truly impacts. But I want to talk about three things today about how the resurrection changes our life. Number one, everything Jesus said can be trusted. Have you ever thought about the promises in Scripture? One of my favorite promises is that Jesus will be with us to the very end. Jesus, everything he has said, everything scripture promises us can be trusted. And Jesus backs it up by being the resurrected Savior. Here's something I want you to consider from Matthew 26. It happens uh, on the Last Supper where Jesus is talking to his followers. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to him and said, 
Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here's what Jesus promises you. Here's what scripture affirms to us. That forgiveness of sins, of all of our sins, past, present, and future, is available to us in the person of Christ. That Jesus can forgive you of all of your sins. Now, usually when we talk about the word sin in in churches, there's usually two camps of people. One camp of people experience shame and a whole lot of self-loathing. And you have been beating yourself up over and over and over again, trying to find a remedy for the shame and the guilt that you feel. And I want to save you a lot of heartache. Forgiveness is found not in doing 17 things. Forgiveness is found in the person. His death so that you can live. There's others of us in this room who don't think you're, uh, you need anything to be saved from. And most of that is because we usually compare ourselves to people who we think are worse than us. And since we're not as bad as they are, we think we're okay in the eyes of God. You know, one thing that's really fascinating, when you read Scripture, one of the first things that people encounter when they encounter God is this sense of dread that they have become, they have come in contact with something holy and perfect and righteous. And when they come into contact with something that's holy and perfect and righteous, they immediately see all of their flaws and their faults and their sins. And so everything that Jesus said can be trusted. He offers us forgiveness of sins. And a couple of years ago, I was really thinking about how to present this to people. And how was it that one man's death could give you life? Right? Have you ever thought that before? How was it that Jesus' death could give you life? In theology, this is called the atonement, which means that Jesus' death, we get life because of what he has endured on the cross. But check this out. Every single day, you participate in a form of atonement. Every single meal that you have ever eaten is a testament to the fact that this, in order for you to live, something else must die. In order for you to go to brunch, in order for you to get a two-piece spicy at Popeye's, something had to die so that you could live. My vegans, uh, the soybean had to die. The apple, whatever, it's con- it was connected to a life source. And listen to this. It has to be cut off from the life source so that you can enjoy and eat it. Every single time you have ever eaten a meal, it is because something else needs to die so that you can live. Spiritually, it is the same way. In order for us to have life, something needed to die. Someone needed to die so that we can have life. And Jesus tells us to come to him. All of you who are burdened and heavy laden, he will give us rest. Rest from our worry, rest from our concerns, rest from the guilt and the sin that hangs on our back. And we can stand in front of a holy God, righteous, not because of us, but because of him. So, number one, everything Jesus said can be trusted. And that includes um, us being able to receive forgiveness for our sins. That invitation for forgiveness from our sins is is one that is the best decision I've ever made in my life. Number two, Jesus experienced the wounding of life so that he can relate to you in your suffering. Jesus experienced the wounding of life so that he can relate to you in your suffering. In John 20, we see what the risen Jesus looks like. We get a description of him. It says, but Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So in this part of the scripture, Jesus had been resurrected. He shows up to a, a group of his disciples, but Thomas wasn't in the group. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of, his, of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Skip down to a verse, verse 27. It says, then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. I don't know if y'all caught that, but one of the most profound realities about the resurrected Jesus is that he is resurrected, but his scars are still intact. Have you ever thought about why God did that? Why would God be resurrected and still have his scars? I think it's to remind us that he himself has been wounded by life. And in his wounding, he can relate to you and your wounding. You know, over 10 years ago, uh, Easter weekend always means a lot to me. Uh, over 10 years ago, my late wife died the day before Easter on Holy Saturday or Easter Saturday. And this scripture has been a salve to me. It has been in times where I was confused and couldn't feel like I could relate to anybody else. I knew I could turn to Jesus and relate to him. I knew that he knew what it felt like to experience pain. So even though today is Easter Sunday, if today feels more like Easter Saturday for you in your life, that's my time running out. If, you're, if today feels more like Easter Saturday, then just know that Jesus, he's experienced the wounds of life. He's experienced betrayal, disappointment, heartache, frustration, crucifixion. And so he invites you to come to him, knowing that in him, you can find peace in someone who can relate to you, someone who can understand pain at levels that you and I could never even experience. So number one, Jesus, everything he said is true and can be trusted. Number two, um, Jesus experienced the wounding of life so that he can relate to you and your suffering. And number three, uh, we don't have to live a complacent life. You know, one of the things that's like really interesting for me, and I do this in my own life, I mostly start the narrative of what's going on in my life with what I can't do, with what's going wrong, with what's broken. So many times when I talk to people, the narrative of our life is I can't do this, I'm not doing a good job with this. Our narrative begins with what has died, whether it's the dream, the vision, the relationship. And today on Resurrection Sunday, I want us to start with who's alive. Romans 8:11 says this. It's a profound scripture, one of my favorite in the Bible. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. What scripture presents to us is a profound reality. It says that for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Not a watered down version, but the real spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So let me ask you a question. If God can raise, God the Father can raise Jesus, God the Son from the dead, what is impossible in your life? What is the mountain in your life that you're like, ah, I don't think I'll ever get through that? Today, I want us to reframe our lives, not to ignore the challenges and difficulties, but to put them in a different perspective, that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, raised God the Son from the dead, that same spirit lives on the inside of us, and that same spirit promises to hold us down, to give us life, to sustain us, 
to nurture us, to compel us. And here's what I hope your compulsion is today. I hope that your expectations of what God can do in your life, I hope that your hope goes way up and you start praying bolder prayers than you've ever prayed before. And I hope you know that God will be with you to the very end, even in the meantime. Not that God is obligated to do anything we ask him to do, but God is better than the small version of him that we have in our lives. There's a scripture that says that God holds all of the oceans are like in the palm of his hand. And I want us thinking about the power of a resurrected Jesus who lives on the inside of us. For everybody who has placed their faith in Christ. So what, I want to do, what do I want you to do with this? Uh, in just a moment, we're going to bring the worship team back on and the, and the choir back on to sing some songs. And even if you can't sing, I want you singing out loud, confessing the truths of you, what you believe, God's promises to you. Worship is not just something we do to, to fill some voids in the service. It is tuning our hearts to heaven's frequency. It's us making confessions to, to music and to song. And for those of you in this room who don't know where you stand in your relationship with God, I want to offer you really, we don't do emotional manipulation and, and try to get people to respond uh, in, in manipulative ways. But we also don't want you to leave here, like leave here undecided. We don't want you to leave here the same way you came here. And so if you don't know where you stand in your faith, we want to give you the opportunity to take your next step in faith. And you could do that in two ways. One, you could fill out on your connection card for more information on baptism. And that's not you saying you're going to get baptized tomorrow. That's you saying, I want to take the next step of faith um, in my life to a Jesus that has already taken 8,948 steps towards us. And so you can fill out that on a connection card. Or for those of you who don't want to leave this room today unresolved, my, my brother Kevin up here in the blue, he'll be in the front of service and he would love to talk to you about what it would look like for you to take your next step of faith towards Jesus, the resurrected and powerful Savior. So let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, I thank you uh, just for this beautiful truth that we get to look at today, the power and the reality of your resurrection, and I pray that it changes us. I pray that it raises our expectations. I pray that it emboldens us. I pray that it encourages us. I pray that it welcomes and challenges us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.